Hello there, folks. Greetings and welcome to another episode of the Undercover Bubble Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Moore, and I'd like to thank you very much for joining me today to take a deep dive into this interesting thing that we call the conservative media bubble. Today is September 29th, 2020, and it's a very important day in this election that's a little under a month and a half away now because tonight we're going to see the first presidential debate. It's going to be the first time that Trump and Biden have actually squared off in the same room against each other, and it's probably going to be very entertaining television, I can guarantee you that. But I'm not going to be talking about the debate today, obviously, because it hasn't happened yet. So I'm going to save that for next episode when I cover the debate and the before and after within the bubble. But there was a lot of other things that happened this last week and early this week that I want to discuss Beginning with the elephant in the room, which is that the New York Times got a hold of 15 years worth of Trump's tax returns and posted their analysis of them as a news story on Sunday. So I know technically I'm getting into what happened this week, but this is such an important story and I'm probably not going to have a chance to get to it next time simply because I'm going to be covering the debate. But basically what the New York Times found is that Trump in 10, maybe even 11 of the last 15 years, didn't pay a single cent in federal taxes or state taxes, specifically because he was able to write off so many business losses, and he's basically operating in $500 million worth of debt. So basically, not only did he completely lie to us by saying that his taxes were clean and that he was paying, quote, a lot, which he wasn't, he is not as rich as he's trying to make himself out to be. He is in $500 million of debt, and a lot of that is going to be coming due in the next four years. And basically, his tax returns say that he has no way of paying for that because he's so deep in debt. So basically, even with that, he's been using his debt to write off his taxes. So he, he despite having, I think it was around $2.2 billion in assets hasn't paid a single cent in taxes for 10 or 11 of the last 15 years. And in the years he was running for an elected president, 2016 and 2017, he paid a whopping $750 each year in federal taxes. Now, I can tell you personally, I did not make near as much money as Donald Trump did. And yet, I had to pay way more in federal taxes than he did. So I guess my question is, and probably the question that everyone's asking themselves right now is, how is this fair? How is it fair that Trump, who they said in his federal taxes, his name is worth $57 million, which by the way is down from the $80 million it was worth in 2016. But in any case, how is it that someone who apparently has $2 billion in assets and makes hundreds of millions of dollars in profits a year, how is he able to pay less taxes than someone who works an 8-to-5 job, 40 hours a week, maybe even two, and barely scrapes by in a studio apartment? It makes no sense to me. It makes no sense to anyone with a conscience, really. And it both highlights how completely screwed up our tax code is and how easily people like Trump can manipulate it to basically avoid giving any money to the government. So you can imagine that when this story broke, it was huge. 
everyone in the mainstream media jumped on it, analyzed it, and basically concluded that this was terrible for Trump, both in terms of what it said and the timing, because we're about to embark on the first presidential debate. And you just know that now, because they released it at the time that they did, this is going to come up in the debate. There's no way it doesn't. And Trump is going to have to basically defend himself from these accusations of gaming the tax system and lying to the American people live on stage without having prepared for them. Not that he prepares for anything anyway, but if you're living in the conservative media bubble like I am, you might not even know this happened. And if you do, you're going to think it's no big deal whatsoever. Because the only way I found out about it was because a couple of my Facebook friends posted links to the articles. In my watching of conservative media for the first day and a half or so, I didn't see anything on it at all. And the only reason I knew it happened was because A, I saw that Facebook post, and B, my normal news app that I have on my phone flashed it in front of my face. So as you can imagine, I was quite curious as to how the pundits in the conservative media bubble, namely the Fox News ones that everybody watches, were going to react to a story like this because it was clear cut with evidence that Trump gamed the system, lied to America, and personally enriched himself doing it. So I was like, okay, how's Tucker Carlson going to handle this? How's Hannity and Laura Ingram going to handle this? So I watched all three hours of the Fox News conservative pundit zone, and it was quite interesting to say the least. So first, Tucker Carlson came on, and he didn't mention, you know, this is the biggest story of the day, by far. Nothing else was really being covered anywhere else in the media. But when we got to Tucker Carlson, he didn't mention it at all in his opening monologue. Instead, he defended Trump's pick for the Supreme Court, and specifically her religion, and accused Democrats of attacking Christianity. And in all the time I watched Tucker's show, it took 45 minutes, and it's an hour-long show, it took 45 minutes in before Tucker finally addressed it. And all he said was that Trump used legal tax loopholes and did nothing wrong. Then he tried to turn it around and say, these tax loopholes are unfair and must be closed. My response to which is, so then Trump did do something wrong. If these tax loopholes are unfair and need to be closed, then why isn't it wrong that Trump took advantage of them? But after he did that, then he tried to warp it and blame it on the tech companies and rich Democrats. He called it the social oligarchy and basically said, these tech companies run by rich Democrats and controlled by the DNC, they're trying to change the way you think. They're trying to make it so that everyone thinks in socialist and liberal values like them. And this is the real problem, not what Trump... Oh, wait, no, he didn't mention Trump at all for the rest of it. <laughs> he basically mentioned it for one or two sentences saying Trump didn't do anything wrong and then never talked about it again. He even had a guest on who was talking about this social oligarchy. And he had one of the strangest and most hilarious quotes I've ever heard anyone on the right say. And it was, Americans need to learn how to suffer better. 
And to give you a little context, they were talking about how the social oligarchy wants to keep people in their place. They want to keep poor people poor and rich people rich, which, you know, is funny coming from the party that pretty much enables that. But let's think for a second about what this guy might mean by Americans need to learn how to suffer better. So I have a theory. We all know that the Republicans aren't too fond of the lower classes, specifically because they tend to vote Democrat. So as a result, they're trying to decrease the power of the lower class by doing things such as gerrymandering and implementing voter ID laws because they know that a lot of poor people don't have enough money to be able to get an ID, and especially those of different races, and doing things in this election, such as casting doubt on the validity of mail-in ballots, because they know that most poor people will be voting that way. But the point I'm trying to get to is that this is the reason why most Republicans don't support a social safety net. This is why most Republicans support the pull yourself up by your own bootstraps theory, because that's the real American thing to do. America helps those who help themselves. Well, I think the more accurate version of that in today's America is America enriches those who enrich themselves. People like Donald Trump, who already have money and can afford to spend money into the system to make it work better for them. And so this is what's happening with Americans need to learn how to suffer better. They're basically saying, we don't want to give you your social programs. We don't want to be able to help you pull yourself up out of the muck. Because we want you to do that yourself. We want you to suffer better. We want you to know how to put food on your table. We want you to know desperation so that you may rise above it. And I mean, there is a lot of draw with the theory like that. It's a very, I don't want to say optimistic because that would be the wrong word, but it assumes that everybody is the very best version of themselves all the time, even if they're living on the street with no money. But that's the thing. Life is not a fairy tale like that. You can't just pull yourself up by your bootstraps anymore. That's not to say it doesn't happen, but it is so difficult to do that in today's society where most entry-level jobs require two years of experience in your field, and you can't get two years of experience in your field without an entry-level job. So I think... What he's trying to say by Americans need to learn how to suffer better is poor Americans need to understand their place as poor people and be okay with it. And that is honestly one of the cruelest things I've ever heard on mainstream television said by any sort of political pundit. So I was, I mean, I was laughing at first because the way he said it was just both hysterical and terrible at the same time. But it's really, really cruel and sort of an insight as to how these people really think. They really think that if you're poor, it's only because you're not trying hard enough and you deserve to stay down there dumpster diving and living on the street because you haven't pulled yourself up out of your own bootstraps. And I can tell you, having known people who have tried to do it and knowing people who are homeless... It is never that simple. It is never just a matter of working hard. Sometimes you work hard and you get nothing for it. Sometimes 
opportunity just comes rushing at you whether you want it or not. That's life. You never know what's going to happen. And so to say that people who are suffering should suffer better, should find enjoyment in that suffering, should know their place and be happy with it. As I was saying last week, that's a very, very 17th, 18th century sort of way of thinking, as in we're better than you and you should know it and be okay with it. So I I just had to mention that because I thought that was one of the most incredulous things I've ever heard anybody say. So anyway, moving on to Sean Hannity. So Sean Hannity, again, like Tucker, didn't mention anything about Trump's tax returns at first. He only discussed the debate. And I'll get into what he talked about next week when I talk about the debate, because there was a lot of interesting and hilarious stuff going on that I love to relay to you guys, but you'll just have to wait till next episode. But anyway, finally, about 23 minutes in, so in about half the time that Tucker did, he mentioned it. He said a single sentence. The left-wing media can't stop talking about Trump's tax returns. Then it went to commercial. And that's it. For the entire show, he never talked about it again. So at that point, I was thinking to myself, well, this seems like just about anything else that comes along that is negative of Trump in the mainstream media. They just want to pretend like it didn't happen. They want to just toss it off to the side and say it doesn't exist. But then Laura Ingram came on, and she actually mentioned it in her opening monologue. And not only mentioned it, she talked about it at length. And I was quite surprised after everything I'd seen over the last two hours. So what Laura Ingram said, she started out by defending Trump's COVID response, talking about how to debate Joe Biden, by saying... You know, 200,000 people may have died, but it didn't wreck the economy. And my response to that, real quickly, is it did wreck the economy, one. And two, the economy, as we see it in the stock market, doesn't really reflect what's happening in the American economy as a whole, specifically because it's so pumped up with high-value stocks like Apple and Amazon and Microsoft and Facebook and things like that, that, like I said, it doesn't really reflect what's going on in the American economy at large. And the American economy is still, at least for people who don't own stock in these big companies, is still very much down from where it was before the pandemic. So anyway... Laura Ingram, while defending Trump's COVID response, she snuck in the New York Times story and said Trump didn't do anything wrong. She used tax loopholes that were perfectly legal that anyone can use and that the Democrats are using it just as juice to put fuel in Biden's debate machine because he's so inept and sleepy and old and senile that he needs everything that he can get. And then came my favorite part of her whole argument. She said, and why is it that Trump only paid $750 in taxes? That's right. 
it's because of Obama. Yep, she blamed Trump's tax story on Obama, on a law that he passed trying to get us out of the recession, basically saying that law was what enabled Trump to write off so many of his taxes and only have to pay $750 in 2016. So yeah, Laura Ingram both said that what Trump did was okay and what Trump did was not okay, but blame Obama because he's the one that enabled him to do it. And so in times like these, when I hear someone in the conservative bubble give out some sort of specific statistic or say something that sounds like it should be true, for example, Trump and his 81 million ballots, I like to look it up. I like to scour the far reaches of the internet and see if I can figure out exactly where they got this information. So when Laura Ingram said that not only was what Trump did not wrong, it was both wrong and Obama's fault, which of course makes no sense, I figured I had to look it up and see where she was getting this information from. So I spent about half an hour scouring the internet as best I could, and I turned up nothing really. I looked up everything I could about Obama's bailout bill and how the auto industry was saved and how what sort of bonuses they gave to corporations so that they would be able to weather the storm of the recession. But I really couldn't find any article explaining how this worked to benefit someone like Trump. And in fact, when I did specifically look at whether Trump benefited from the bailout and the recession measures specifically, the only articles I was able to find on that subject were all from right-wing websites and within the bubble. And they all basically said, well, Trump just took advantage of all the things Obama passed, so really it's Obama's fault that his taxes are so low. So, as I've said before, when you see something said in the bubble that sounds that fishy and you can't find anything outside of it that would confirm it or even give it a shred of truth, it's a lie. It's just a straight-up lie, and you don't even need to give it any mind whatsoever. But anyway, going back to Laura Ingram and how she responded to the New York Times article, she then just straight-up started attacking the New York Times themselves, saying they just hunt for negative stories about Trump. And every chance they get to denigrate it, and they put it up on the front page in big, bold letters because all they want to do is bring Trump down because they're nothing but a liberal rag. And that was it. Four or five minutes max, Laura Ingram poorly, but I guess admirably because no one else did, defended Trump's tax returns as released by the New York Times. And that was it. Then for the rest of the show, Laura Ingram and her guests just moved on to attacking Biden the day before the debate. So if you're wondering what the bubble thought of the New York Times article, they tried to just bury it as much as possible and basically say, la, 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 I can't hear you. It makes Trump look bad. I can't hear you. La, 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 Kevin Bacon was not in Footloose. La, 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 la. But anyway, let's move on, I should say, move back to the news that happened last week that I wanted to discuss, which is that Trump nominated Amy Coney Barrett, a conservative justice, as his pick to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court. And... I'm not going to spend much time on it because, honestly, neither did the bubble. 
And obviously when it happened, the day that it happened, they talked at length about how great of a person she is and she has seven kids and she's super religious Catholic and Americans should love that because her faith is her strength and all this stuff. And really, if we're being honest here, the bubble just absolutely upplayed as much as they possibly could her faith, which is kind of funny because the sect of Catholicism she belongs to is, for lack of a better term, abnormal. It's not mainstream Catholicism like we would normally see for most people. It's a lot of people would call it a cult. I don't know if I'd go that far specifically, but it's a sect of Catholicism called People of Praise. According to ABC, it's a very small, closely knit Christian conservative group. And from what I can tell, it sort of combines some of the belief systems and ways of worship of mainstream Catholicism and Pentecostalism, which in its purest form is the one that they have the super big mega churches and people talking in tongues and healing the sick with the preacher and things like that. So, like I said, it's sort of a mix between the two of those and some of the beliefs that apparently this sect of Catholicism believes in are a little bit out there. For example, the New York Times reported that the group's members swear a lifelong oath of loyalty called a covenant to one another and are assigned and are accountable to a personal advisor called a head for men and a handmaid for women. It teaches that the husbands are the heads of their wives and should take authority over the family. And apparently when this story came out, a lot of people compared what this group believed to the dystopian book, which has now been made into the hit TV show, The Handmaid's Tale, because it sort of reminded them of, in that story, the handmaids are basically women who are owned by men and used for whatever purposes they want to be used for. So I guess the naming of handmaids in that aspect sort of reminded people of that. And once they figured that out, the church was like, okay, we can't name them this anymore. So now we they call handmaids women leaders instead, which I agree is a lot better, but it doesn't change the fact that they still believe that women are subservient to men in every way, which is really the point I was trying to get at. So that's one belief. And another one that's getting a lot of attention is that Pentecostal stuff that I was mentioning earlier which is that they believe in healing the sick through the power of God channeled through the charismatic preacher. They believe that speaking in tongues is a thing that happens and is just the power of God possessing you. And if you're listening to this and you believe in any of that stuff, I'm not trying to rain on your parade here. I'm not trying to say that what you believe is crazy. I'm just trying to say that it's definitely outside the mainstream of what most Americans believe is appropriate for worship and for believing in their religion. And so that's why there's been a lot of controversy with the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett, because she's an active part of this small but charismatic community of religious people who believe in all of these abnormal things. And a lot of people, when she was nominated, on the left anyway, 
sort of questioned if she gets into the Supreme Court, is she going to bring some of those strange out there beliefs into the court with her? Now, to her credit, Amy Coney Barrett, when asked about this personally, has always said, I don't let my faith guide me when I make judicial decisions. But the problem is that even if you don't think that your religion or your political leanings are going to make a difference in how you judge, they do. It's been demonstrably proven over the last 200-ish years of the Supreme Court being a political tool that when you have liberal justices on the court, they tend to vote more liberal. If you have conservative justices on the court, they tend to vote more conservative. And this also applies to any decision that's regarding religion. If you have a more conservative, sort of religious-minded court, they're going to vote more in terms of religious freedom, which in today's vernacular basically means legal discrimination against gays, lesbians, and anyone who doesn't seem like they would be a normal part of a conservative, happy nuclear mom-and-pop family. So this is what liberals are really up in arms about is the fact that if Amy Coney Barrett gets on the Supreme Court, not only will they have a 6-3 majority and be able to do all those things I talked about last week with the election, but their main worry right now is that Roe v. Wade could get overturned, gay rights could get overturned. Under the guise of religious freedom, they could basically say, well, because a lot of businesses are based on religion and because we have religious freedom and because refusing service to people they don't believe are valid people is part of their religion, it's okay to discriminate against gays and lesbians now. But And then I'd say, okay, well, what if I have a religion that says black people are secondary to white people? Does that mean that because black people are against my religion... I can discriminate against them and not let them in my shop. So this, this is the kind of thing that liberals are worried about, and they should be. Because, I mean, I'm not going to try to speak to Amy Coney Barrett's character here at all. From what I've seen of her, she seems like a very nice, very fair person. But it isn't really about her so much as about what she believes and what the other conservatives on the court believe being a block to social change for the next 30 to 40 years. But if you're stuck in a bubble like I am, you just think the Democrats hate religion in general. That is the exact attack angle that everyone in the bubble, Fox News, Breitbart, Infowars, whatever, they all seem to be taking the same approach, which is that Democrats don't want to confirm her because she's religious. And because they're Democrats, they hate religion. They want to get rid of all religion. They want to kill God. And soon they'll be in your homes and in your schools teaching children terrible things like it's okay to be gay. Be afraid. So that's the way that the conservative bubble is framing Amy Coney Barrett's nomination. Not because the Democrats don't want another conservative on the Supreme Court. Not because they're worried about what she might say if Trump contests the election which, by the way, Trump is very excited about. He specifically said now he wants her on the court in time for the election so that she can tip it in his favor if it comes to them. But nope, 
It's not because of that. That's not why the Democrats don't want her on there. They don't want her on there because the Democrats hate religion. Just listen to this excerpt from an article from Town Hall called Democrats Take Aim at Amy Coney Barrett. They will come at ACB on policy, starting with their unwillingness to agree that the penumbras and emanations within the Constitution somehow require us to declare open season on unborn kids. Abortion is everything to these leftist weirdos, and that she will interpret the Constitution as it is written is the biggest threat to the leftist scheme to judicially remake America. And, of course, there will be the manifestations of the anti-Catholic bigotry the Democrats allow to bubble under the surface within their caucus. They can't fully get their heads around the idea that people actually believe this Jesus stuff, and they are so stunningly ignorant that they think the term handmade originated in that stupid novel that blows lonely sophomores' minds and not, you know, in the Bible. So this is just one example of... And there's probably dozens of these that I've seen and read over the last few days that basically anticipate Democrats specifically attacking Amy Coney Barrett for her religion, not for being in what a lot of people consider a borderline cult, but just religion in general. And I believe this is a part of a bigger strategy that the right is trying to take to paint Democrats as the anti-religious party. They've been trying to do this for a while now. But now that we have such a forwardly religious candidate for the Supreme Court, the Republicans and the bubble are going to try and kick this into overdrive. During the hearings, which I expect will take place in the next couple of weeks, there's going to be a lot of Republicans on the panel saying stuff sort of like what we've seen whenever they get one of their buddies up on the stand and they say thank you for doing this you're so brave i can't believe the baseless attacks that the democrats are throwing at you it's all lies it's all untrue thank you for your service i think we're going to see a lot of that but specifically focused on religion for the republicans they're basically going to say thank you for being here acb we all know your judicial record is impeccable and you're a woman of faith and for the Democrats to come in here and question your faith and to say that it's not right and to say that there's something wrong with believing in God. They're the ones that are anti-religious. They're the ones that don't believe in God. They don't believe in anything except themselves and enriching the Democratic deep state. And from there, it could just spiral into all sorts of fun things. But my point is that they're using... Amy Coney Barrett's nomination, the bubble is, as sort of a stepping stone to doing what I mentioned in the authoritarian episode a few weeks back and painting the Democrats as the party of irreligiousness, which in a lot of ways it sort of is already, but that doesn't change the fact that the majority of people in the Democratic Party are still very much religious and it's true that the number of non-religious people in this country is rising every year, but that doesn't mean that the party, because most of them seem to gravitate towards the Democratic Party, that they're irreligious, the party is, I mean. It doesn't mean that the Democrats don't like religion, but that doesn't matter to the bubble, because it's all about what you feel. And what you feel is that the GOP is the party of faith is the party of religion. And if you're not part of the GOP, that means you're not religious. You're either with us or against us. No compromise, no mercy. So that's what the 
bubble thought of Amy Coney Barrett's nomination, and it was a big story, to be sure, but not as big as what I really wanted to talk about this week, which was the Breonna Taylor verdict. And I think that this moment, the verdict specifically, is going to go down in history as sort of this generation's Rosa Parks, this generation's Dred Scott decision. It's going to be the thing that sort of showed that inequality and racism in our society, not only did it still exist, but it was still just as rampant as it was 50 years ago. It's just gotten better at hiding itself. So for those of you who don't know what happened, Brianna Taylor was shot in her apartment by police executing a no-knock warrant and they basically just burst in without announcing themselves and shot her dead in her own house. So basically the moral of the story for black people is now you're not even safe in your own house anymore because the police might just kick your door down and shoot you. So they had a grand jury trial to see if they were going to charge any of the officers with murder or manslaughter or anything. And what ended up happening was one of the officers did get charged, but not for murder, not for manslaughter, not for anything having to do with Breonna Taylor. Nope. He got charged for firing his weapon into the walls of the apartment next to hers. And so he was charged with, I believe, reckless endangerment or something like that. Basically, when you killed this poor girl in her own home, you also fired shots into the wall that went into the apartment next door and you endangered those guys. And that's what we're charging you for. Not for killing Breonna Taylor, for the bullets that didn't kill Breonna Taylor that went into the wall of the apartment next door. And when this verdict came out, the attorney general, who, by the way, is black, came out and made a press conference in which he said, and I quote, mob justice isn't justice. To which I would reply, no, justice is justice. And Breonna Taylor was murdered in her own home by police officers executing a no-knock warrant. And I don't care what the grand jury came up with in saying that, oh, they changed it, and now we suddenly have these witnesses that said they knocked and said police, even though one of them changed their story. I think, actually, The Daily Show's social media team, who, by the way, if you don't follow them, I highly recommend you do, because while I have mixed feelings on Trevor Noah taking over for Jon Stewart on The Daily Show, their social media team is spot on. They're, they do really good work. And it was them that had pretty much the best take on this that anyone, right or left, I had seen. Which is, the justice system apparently cares less about black people than they do about drywall. Pretty accurate, if you ask me. But if you're in the conservative bubble, I mean, everybody said in the bubble that... The verdict was unfortunate and agreed that it did not really give the killers of Breonna Taylor any sort of justice or comeuppance, but they didn't care about that in the bubble. All they cared about was they convened the grand jury 
this is what they came up with, and we should respect it. We need to just shut up about it, move on with life, and sorry, Breonna Taylor died. And according to them, this goes right with the law and order message that both they and Trump are trying to spread. This is law and order at work. What more do you want, black people? They convened the grand jury. They looked at the evidence. They decided that there was no way they could charge anyone with anything significant. And this is their decision. This is what the law figured out. So you need to just let it go. But I can tell you, predictably, people didn't let it go. People took angrily to the streets, as they should. And we had the biggest protest movement that we've had since the George Floyd death. And it's clear that these protests are getting much better organized now because one of the big stories that the bubble loved to talk about, especially that night and the day after, was the U-Haul truck. So apparently someone who sympathized with the BLM movement bought a U-Haul truck, or I should say rented a U-Haul truck, and filled it with signs and shields and banners and things like that that people could take out of there and bring to the protests. And she basically pulled up outside the protest zone and unloaded all her cargo to people who wanted it. And if you're looking at the bubble, this is basically irrefutable proof that Antifa is behind everything. How could someone protesting pay for a U-Haul truck there's got to be more money behind this. Where'd all these signs and riot shields and things like that come from? There's got to be something behind it. And Breitbart didn't specify in its headline what kind of stuff that the truck was unloading, only that it was, quote, gear. Definitely insinuating that it was weapons, which, of course, it wasn't. But it didn't stop with just the U-Haul truck. Every single headline in the bubble that I saw regarding the protesters or Black Lives Matter or Breonna Taylor's verdict was anti-protester calling them rioters, saying they were backed by Antifa, saying that BLM was organized by people like George Soros and high-level Democrats who just want to cause anarchy. And there was one thing in particular that the bubble loved to echo, and that was the one person who walked next to a police car when the protests were just getting started and yelled, get ready to effing die. So when the bubble saw this, they did what they love to do with things like this and take this one example of someone acting exactly the way they want to paint the Democrats as and applied it to the entire movement. So the headlines weren't just Protester yells at police, get ready to effing die. It was Democrat mob is anti-police and wants to kill them. And there have been protesters screaming, get ready to effing die. As if it was a regular, constant thing that everyone in the protests was doing. Even though it was just the one person that said this. This is a very common tactic that you see in the bubble. They try to take one example of somebody acting negatively, basically the way they want to portray the mainstream as, and apply it to the mainstream. So it's not just the one protester now yelling, get ready to effing die to the police. It's 
every protester is yelling, get ready to effing die to the police, which means that the mob is anti-police. The mob wants to kill police. Defund the police means kill the police. And just these false equivalencies that they love to push on their viewers, which just reinforces this soft, snuggly, secure feeling that they get in the bubble. Because if you have these democratic mobs roaming cities, murdering police officers, the only thing that can save you is the Second Amendment. The only thing that can save you is Trump and federal troopers who will walk in and restore the peace and put down this democratic mob of police-murdering psychopath Antifa units with justice and force. America will rule the day again. Once more, the Sith will rule the galaxy. And we will have peace. It's really uncanny how many similarities I see between the bubbles mentality of peace through strength and force and the Empire from Star Wars. And of course, if you know your Star Wars, you know that the Empire is modeled after Nazi Germany. So I'm not going to make the connection. I'll leave you guys to figure that out. But anyway, I looked all over the bubble for stories about this issue, and they all pretty much said the same thing, that the protests were nothing more than a Democratic-run anti-police mob who were out there to cause chaos and kill police officers. I even turned on Alex Jones right as the protests were getting started to see what his reaction would be, because at the time he was doing his radio show. And literally, the first thing I see him say when I open the page is, it's getting to the point where they're going to start killing people. All you leftist people, you're going to die. You better get ready because your bosses are going to kill you. So what I think he was referring to here, and by the way, what he said was completely ridiculous, as is pretty much everything he says on his radio show. But what I think he was referring to was the fact that in most corporations and big companies, the higher ups tend to be economically and socially more conservative. So it's the cogs. It's the people who don't make money. They're the liberals. So basically what he's saying is for all you low money liberal people, the higher money conservative people are going to see what you're doing and kill you. So that's a real comforting thought, isn't it? Let's move on to Tucker Carlson. So Tucker, as he always does, opened his show with a monologue and he used his monologue to defend the police who killed Breonna Taylor by saying that they knocked multiple times and announced themselves, which to be fair, that is the conclusion that the grand jury came to. But again, I just straight up don't believe it. The story is disputable at best. Neighbors have come on the record and said there was no announcement. They just kicked the door down. But then he attacked Brianna Taylor herself and her boyfriend who fired back at the police when they kicked down the door unannounced. He said, and I quote, how many shots must a police officer take before they fire back? So my response to that is, I would think the only reason a reasonable person would fire at someone who kicked their door down is if they didn't know they were a police officer. I mean, if someone said, police, open up the door, we're breaking in, and I had a gun, I wouldn't shoot them. I mean, I can't speak for anyone else when I say that, but 
there's a big difference between someone saying police open up a bunch of times and then kicking my door down and just getting my door kicked down. Because if someone just kicks my door down without announcing themselves, I'm going to assume it's either a home invasion or someone's trying to come in to hurt or kill me. So obviously I'm going to defend myself. And this being a drug warrant that they had for the property, they didn't find any drugs there, including with her boyfriend. So I guess my point is that the only reasonable thing I can think of as to why he shot at the police was because he didn't think they were police or didn't know they were police. But anyway, Tucker just moved right along in the crazy train from attacking Breonna Taylor to accusing rich Democrats of funding the protests, Antifa, and of trying to destabilize the economy. And then came my personal favorite part of this monologue in which he stated, the narrative that black people aren't safe in America is a lie. He said the statistics don't back it up and anyone who tells you otherwise is just lying. Now, I have black friends. And I can say, as a white man, I do not know and never will know the pain and suffering and fear that black people go through every day just for the color of their skin. But I can tell you, just as an observer, that it exists. That black people are not safe in America. Because every time they walk out onto the street, they might have an interaction with a police officer that ends in them dying. And in the case of Breonna Taylor, she didn't even have to go out of her home. They just kicked down the door and shot her. I ask you, how is a black person safe in America if they're not safe in their own house? I just had to mention that. It's just completely insane that someone would think that at all. Tucker Carlson or no. But for the rest of the show, pretty much, he just talked about the things I already mentioned, which was the U-Haul truck and how it's funded by Antifa and the mob is really just controlled by rich Democrats who want to destabilize things and murder police officers. But near the end of his show, he had an interview where this British guy who looked an awful lot like Lane Price from Mad Men, if you've ever seen that show, laughed about Seattle, quote, paying a pimp as an alternative to police. And they spent about five minutes going back and forth on this and just laughing their butts off. So when I heard about this, I thought, okay, this is way too out there to be real. And I was going to make it the weirdest thing I saw this week until I saw what I'm going to mention to you in a few minutes. So anyway, the real story of this is that Seattle agreed to defund their police department by $100 million. And as part of that defunding, they redirected a lot of the money that was going from the police department to other endeavors. And one of them was that 150000 of it was going to a nonprofit. This nonprofit was run by a former pimp who admittedly is open about his past, but is very clearly not a pimp anymore and instead he now runs this nonprofit that's dedicated to reducing violence in black communities so basically this is seattle not so much replacing 
cops with pimps as defunding an overbloated police department and giving that money to community organizers and groups and nonprofits that will actually make a difference. So I just thought it was funny and kind of sad that Fox and Tucker in particular tried to sort of frame defunding the police as they're going to defund the police and replace them with pimps. No, they're not. They're going to defund the police and use the money that they were using towards having an overbloated militaristic police department and actually use it to help people that need help. I, I just don't get how anyone could see it any other way. But in fact, I consider it kind of ironic because I believe it might have been even the same day, but definitely sometime last week, there was a judge who tossed a lawsuit over a Trump story after Fox in court argued that, quote, no reasonable person would ever take Tucker Carlson seriously and that his show is not a news show and no reasonable person would ever think that it was. And this is both hilarious to me and scary because not only do a lot of people consider it a news source, but Fox News seems to market it as a news source. Regardless of what they might say in court and regardless of what other people outside of the bubble might think. In the bubble, Tucker Carlson is a news source. Hannity is a news source. Oh, speaking of Hannity, he had a lot of fun stuff to say about the U-Haul truck. He said that the U-Haul truck unloaded anarchist and anti-police signs, weapons, and riot shields. Well, first of all, there were no weapons. It's very much clear that that was the case. Secondly, the signs that were being unloaded were not anti-police. They were not anarchists. They were anti-Brianna Taylor verdict. And yes, there were some that said defund the police, but that's sort of more of a common call to action than people actually saying we should get rid of the police officers. And third, gee, I wonder why they would need riot shields. Maybe because every time they get together to peacefully protest, riot police descend on them like an overwhelming military force with batons and tear gas and pepper spray. It makes sense to me. If the police are being overly violent to them, they need something that can protect themselves from it. But the other thing that I wanted to mention was when the Proud Boys rally came around on the same day in Portland, there was equipment unloaded from a U-Haul truck. Wouldn't surprise me if weapons were in there. I don't think there were, but I can't remember at this point. The bubble said nothing about the Proud Boys rally and their U-Haul truck. It was only the left-wing Democrats, crazy radical leftist Antifa supporters, and their weapons and kill-all-the-police mentality. Not the Proud Boys, who actually had weapons and could have killed people and have openly said that they want an armed insurrection against the government if they have to. Not those folks who are actually threatening violence. It's these other folks who are peaceful, who are Antifa and secretly trying to bring down the system with anarchy and chaos. But in any case, he talked for quite some time about the U-Haul truck. So I went ahead and went on PolitiFact, which is a nonprofit fact check organization to see what the real story was behind this U-Haul truck. So according to PolitiFact, 
who again, they're nonpartisan. They treat left and right equally. Number one, the signs were abolish and defund the police and not anarchist. Number two, there were no weapons in the truck and there was no evidence that Antifa was even there at the protest, let alone giving weapons to anyone. And three, the PolitiFact article addresses the claim from the bubble that the truck was rented by a George Soros operative. And we all know by now that George Soros is one of the favorite targets of the conspiratorial right because he's a rich guy, but he's not a Republican. So they all hate him. Oh, and they also hate the fact that he's Jewish, too, but we don't have to talk about that. But anyway, this claim that George Soros rented the U-Haul truck started out on 4chan and alt-right message boards and spread out to the mainstream because it got so much traction on these message boards that mainstream media had to address it. But the NPO for which the person who rented the truck works for is not funded by George Soros. It used to be. I think it was two or three years ago, but it's not anymore. Also, it's become clear that she rented the truck on her own time and with her own money. So PolitiFact rates this claim as mostly false, which basically means there's, there might be slight grains of truth to that, which is that the U-Haul truck was rented by somebody who works for an MPO that used to be funded by George Soros. But it's not anymore. But for the most part, anything you hear about that story is false and it's wrong. But anyway, Hannity only talked about Breonna Taylor and this U-Haul truck for about five minutes and then went right along to the Hunter Biden Burisma scandal. That's right. They're still hammering on this over and over again because as I've said earlier in earlier episodes, this is the only path to victory that the Republicans can see is to hammer home this Hunter Biden connection so hard that people can't get it out of their minds. And in this case, they were referring to the results of the Republican-led Biden inquiry that had just come out. And he's saying the same basic story we've heard about Hunter Biden being corrupt and basically being paid by oligarchs in Ukraine to do nothing. But we know more now. There's new evidence. But this new evidence that they're referring to, all it said was that Hunter's role at Burisma could be seen as awkward and problematic in the international community, but there was no evidence of any wrongdoing. But regardless of this, Hannity zeroed in and just fired endless salvos at the findings that Hunter received money from people in Russia and China. So when I saw this, I went back over to PolitiFact again. Because, as I've said before, if they're saying this stuff, they got to be getting it from somewhere. So what PolitiFact said on this subject was that it's not uncommon for China to court prominent Americans into business deals. And same with Russia. And the example they gave, actually, ironically, was Ivanka Trump was granted lucrative copyright protections for a lot of her products in China while serving in the White House. So as I've said before, this whole Hunter Biden thing is just completely hypocritical and without merit. And the reason they want to push this narrative 
is because a it distracts from Trump having basically that exact same narrative, except we have proof that it actually happened. And B, they want to sort of put it in people's minds that because Hunter took these business deals while Biden was president, that makes Biden corrupt because he didn't do anything about it because it's his son. And the conclusion that PolitiFact comes to is that while PolitiFact agrees that it would have been better and would have looked better politically if Hunter weren't involved in any of these business deals, he didn't do anything wrong or corrupt that other prominent American businessmen and politicians haven't done in the past. And the interesting thing about this was PolitiFact story, which, by the way, was from May of this year. So it was before any of the new stuff about Hunter was mentioned. By the way, none of it's new. It was all public knowledge already. But it was the only article I could find outside of the bubble that addressed these payments that have been made to Hunter Biden. And so my conclusion is that the mainstream media must not have found any of this stuff significant enough to report on. And obviously the bubble jumped all over it, but in what little I watched of the mainstream media this week, I didn't see anything about this report on Hunter Biden other than the fact that it came out from the Republican-controlled committee and there was no evidence of wrongdoing found. And so I'm just going to end by saying that the reason they jumped on this rather than spending more time on Breonna Taylor is because they want to distract from the facts of the Breonna Taylor case. They want to distract from the facts that justice was not done and that the chance of no justice, no peace are not unfounded. So that was the bubbles coverage of the Breonna Taylor case. And let's just go ahead and move right along to the weirdest thing that I saw this week. And I'm sorry I didn't get to this last week, but I thought it was important that I end on the importance of voting in this election after talking about how much the Supreme Court pick could muck up the election system. So anyway, this week's award goes to Senator Kelly Loeffler. She's a senator from Georgia who's currently in the midst of a re-election campaign for her Senate seat. And she's known for being quite conservative and basically lockstep in the Republican Party for everything she does. But apparently, for the good people of Georgia, for the voters, this isn't good enough. Apparently, she thought she needed to step it up a little bit and show them how committed to the conservative cause she really is. So, I guess she decided to make this advertisement I'm about to show you that just illustrates how conservative she really is in one of the most hilarious, terrible, terrifying, and racist ways that I've ever seen in my entire life. So I'm just going to go ahead and play the ad for you without any context other than that. I hope you enjoy it. Did you know Kelly Leffler was ranked the most conservative senator in America? Yep. She's more conservative than Attila the Hun. Fight China. Got it. Attack big government. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, eliminate the liberal scribes. More conservative than Attila the Hun. Uh-oh. Kelly Leffler, 100% Trump voting record. I'm Kelly Leffler. I approve this message. That's right, folks. Kelly Loeffler is 
more conservative than Attila the Hun, who, in this timeline, is apparently a completely stereotypical East Asian grunty person who hates the liberal scribes and wants to kill them. This is real, folks. This is an actual political advertisement that ran in Georgia for the re-election of a current U.S. Senator. I want you to think about that for a second. In today's political climate, it is okay and apparently even encouraged for someone to use a blatant racist stereotype to illustrate how in line with the conservative bubble and Trumpian doctrine they are. And she's bragging about this. She's bragging about killing the liberal scribes and in this ad, bragging about reducing Attila the Hun to a grunting racist stereotype of Asian people. And believe it or not, this is actually only the second most racist thing I've ever heard from the conservative bubble. The most racist being this classic example from Alex Jones. How are you doing? Would you like rice? Oh, you could do... Oh, dang, 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 dang. I mean, I don't know what else I can say about this. It's definitely one of the strangest political ads I've ever seen. And just the racism and the bragging about the Trump doctrine, and it just all fits together so well in what I've seen of the conservative bubble in the last two months. So congratulations, Senator. Your ad was the weirdest thing that I saw this week. All right, folks, that's going to do it for this edition of the Undercover Bubble Podcast. I want to thank you all for listening and for making it this far through all my rants and raves. So I'll be back hopefully this weekend when we can talk about the debates, which is beginning in a couple of hours now. And I can't wait to see what happens in this debate and to see how the bubble frames Trump's undeniable, irrefutable victory. All right, folks, that's going to do it. I'll see you next time. Have a good one.